Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, and that was a long time ago, we saw how Christian III of Denmark introduced Lutheranism to his new kingdom more or less as soon as he'd taken over. In Denmark proper, the process was fairly undramatic, if you don't count the arrest of the Catholic bishops. In Norway and Iceland, on the other hand, the locals were less enthusiastic about the new religious ideas, ideas that one Icelandic bishop called the German heresy, and they tried to resist the Reformation. Their resistance was futile, though, and in the end, King Christian III both managed to push through his religious reforms and strengthen his own position in all three realms, Denmark, Norway and Iceland. The crown dramatically increased its land ownership, and therefore by extension its wealth and power, and Norway and Iceland were tied closer to Denmark with less political and economic autonomy. This time, we'll have a look at Sweden again. Back in 1523, Gustav Vasa had been elected king of Sweden, thus putting an end to the Kalmar Union. So far, we've focused on the consequences from a Danish perspective, but now it's high time to find out what Gustav did at home once he was king. Episode 74, Sweden under new management. When Gustav Eriksson Vasa was elected king back in episode 71, he swore a solemn oath to protect the Catholic Church in Sweden, holding relics in his hands and referencing the Virgin Mary and Saint Eric, the national saint of Sweden, whom we talked about back in episode 41. It's more than likely that Gustav Vasa was religious and that he meant what he said when he swore that oath. But it's equally likely that he wasn't particularly knowledgeable or even interested in theology. The new king was probably well-versed in biblical stories. At least he liked to compare himself to Moses, who led the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, making the Swedes the Jews, the Danes the Egyptians, and Christian II Pharaoh. But we have no indication that he was particularly interested in Martin Luther and his reformist message, even though he no doubt had heard about it, both in Germany and in Sweden since Lutheranism had started to spread in Sweden at about the same time as it did so in Denmark. Just like everywhere else, the first people to adopt the Lutheran message were city dwellers, and in the Swedish case, the very first ones were German merchants living in Stockholm. Later, priests who'd studied abroad also started to bring home reformist ideas. At a certain point, Bishop Brask, yes, the one who saved his life at the Stockholm bloodbath with a note, was so worried about the inroads made by Lutheranism that he wanted to establish the Inquisition in Sweden. Yes, that Inquisition. But the Swedish Inquisition was never to be, and even though Gustav Vasa wasn't particularly interested in theology, it didn't take long for him to take an interest in Lutheranism. Unlike in Denmark, though, the reason for the king's interest wasn't primarily religious, but political. Already, when he ascended the throne, Gustav Vasa was on collision course with the Pope, because Gustav Trolle, the archbishop who had technically initiated the Stockholm bloodbath, where Gustav's father had been one of the victims, was still considered to be the archbishop of Sweden by the Pope. In reality, Trolle had fled the country and Gustav Vasa would have executed him as a traitor if he'd returned. So the king wanted a new archbishop, but the pope refused to give him one, since from the papal perspective, Gustav Trolle should do. 
Then there was the issue of the king's enormous debt to Lübeck for helping him win the war against Denmark. He needed lots of money, fast, and the church was enormously wealthy. Traditionally, the wealth of the church would have been out of reach, but now all these Lutherans were preaching that the crown had the right to confiscate church property, and that was a tempting message to the cash-strapped Gustav Vasa. So already in 1524, the year after he became king and swore that solemn oath to uphold Catholicism in Sweden, Gustav Vasa appointed a Lutheran priest as secretary of the Council of the Realm. The priest was called Lars Andersson, or Laurentius Andre, as he preferred to be called now that he'd studied Latin and felt that he was too good to go by a simple peasant name. Andre was tasked with convincing various religious orders and institutions to start forking over money and valuables to the crown. Through Laurentius Andre, the king got to know another Lutheran priest with a pretentious Latinized name, namely a guy who called himself Olaus Petri, since Olav Petterson wasn't good enough anymore. Olaus Petri was hired in an administrative position in Stockholm and eventually became the leading theologian of the Swedish Reformation. On February 11, 1525, he got married in a ceremony conducted at St. Nicholas Church in central Stockholm, the most prominent church in the city, a stone's throw from the Stockholm Castle. When Bishop Brask heard about this priest breaking his vows of celibacy and getting married in such a prime ecclesiastical location, the bishop freaked out. He wrote to the king complaining about the scandal, but Gustav Vasa didn't share his outrage. In his reply, the king noted that he saw no reason to punish a priest for getting married when so many of his colleagues lived in sin with mistresses without anyone batting an eyelid. This dismissive response should have freaked the bishop out even more, since it was an indication of the king's willingness to accept Lutheran ideas. It can certainly be seen as a sign of things to come. The following year, in 1526, a Swedish translation of the New Testament was published. Laurentius Andre, Olaus Petri, and a number of less-known priests had translated the text using Luther's German translation as a reference. Later, in 1541, the whole Bible was translated to Swedish, and just like in the Danish and Icelandic cases that I mentioned last time, this Bible became crucial for the development of a standardized Swedish grammar and spelling. The harvest that year was bad, and hunger gripped the population in early 1527. Pious Catholic elements blamed the crisis on the king's flirtation with Lutheranism, allowing blasphemous heresies to be preached in Sweden. Priests were pumping out this message to their congregants all over the country. The situation was volatile and dangerous, so when Gustav Vasa convened the Riksdag, that is, the legislative representatives of the estates in Vesteros in early summer, he showed up with 250 soldiers and even some artillery pieces. He'd also asked selected noblemen to bring armed guards as well, hoping that a sufficient military presence would cool heated tempers and quite possibly persuade the Riksdag to vote the way the king wanted. And this particular Riksdag was going to be momentous. It was crucial for the king that the estates voted his way. Sunday, June 16, 1527, 200 members of the Riksdag gathered in the Dominican monastery in Vesteros. The castle, which would have been the obvious venue for this kind of meeting, was still too badly damaged after the War of Independence against Denmark. Laurentius André stood up and spoke on behalf of the king. He presented a litany of royal complaints. 
The king tried to do the best for the kingdom, but his work conditions were intolerable. The priests were lazy and negligent of their duties, and when the king tried to have them preach the pure word of God, they wanted to have him excommunicated. Under these circumstances, Gustav Vasa no longer wanted to be king. He was quitting. Unless, of course, the priests were willing to hand over money and lands to the crown, badly needed to run the country. If they did, and stopped preaching against him, he'd stay on as king. Bishop Brask, speaking for the clergy, replied that they most certainly weren't going to hand over any property to the crown that would go against the will of the Holy Father or the Pope in Rome. Then the furious Gustav Vasa stood up and shouted that he didn't want to be king over this ungrateful people anymore, and that he'd leave the country and never return. He burst out crying and marched off to the castle in a huff. For three days, he sat in the castle and sulked, refusing to return to the Riksdag. The estates begged him to come back and promised he'd get his way if he'd only stay on as king, or at least the three secular estates did. The clergy still wasn't willing to approve the wholesale confiscation of church property just to convince Gustav Vasa to keep his job. But since the three secular estates voted with the king, he got what he wanted. And yes, the Swedes had four estates, not three. Clergy, nobility, burghers and peasants. On June 24th, the Riksdag granted the crown the right to confiscate property and surplus income belonging to the church. Since the crown decided what was surplus, the king could pretty much take whatever he wanted. The nobility even asked and were granted permission to reclaim properties donated by them to the church. Furthermore, the bishops lost their castles and had to reduce their military entourages. Convents and monasteries were to be administered by secular representatives of the nobility from now on, beyond what was needed to keep the monks and nuns fed and clothed, all their incomes were appropriated by the crown. No new novices were to be accepted, and existing members could no longer be stopped if they wanted to leave. That meant that just like in Denmark, all monastic orders would die out within a generation. The church also lost its right to have a separate legal system, where cases involving clergy were heard in front of courts made up of priests. When the decision was made and the Riksdag disbanded, it was clear that the clergy had suffered a stinging defeat. The financial independence of the church in Sweden was eradicated when its land and other assets were confiscated, making the clergy, even the bishops, dependent on salaries from the crown for their livelihood. Just imagine the humiliation. On the other hand, the nobility and the crown were the winners. Before June 1527, the crown had owned about 4.5% of all farms in the kingdom. After this Riksdag, known after the fact as the Reformation Riksdag, that share rose to 15%. Approximately 14,000 farms were confiscated by the king. Some 11,500 went to the crown, and the rest he kept for himself, padding his already considerable personal property portfolio. According to some estimates, the confiscation increased the crown's annual income by more than 20%. Since the nobility was allowed to reclaim donated property, the various noble families of Sweden took the opportunity to take back some 2,000 farms donated by their relatives to various religious institutions. But even though the church lost its financial and legal independence, nothing definitive was said at the Riksdag Investoros about theology, beyond a vague demand that priests should teach the pure word of God. 
The peasants also had asked that old customs be respected and that holy mass wouldn't be altered. The king didn't mind, indicating once again that his interests in the Reformation wasn't primarily theological. As far as Gustav Vasa was concerned, Sweden was still a Catholic country, and if the church would just be willing to accept that the crown now called the shots, it would stay Catholic. But the Pope wasn't in the mood to accept any such thing. Following the Riksdag in Vesteros, Bishop Brask left Sweden. So did Johannes Magnus, the guy Gustav Vasa had selected as Archbishop of Uppsala to replace the exiled Gustav Trolle. That became an issue in a few months later when Gustav Vasa wanted to be crowned. Even though he had been king for more than four years, he still hadn't had a coronation. That was a problem, since a coronation was the last step of becoming a real king, the ultimate sign that God himself approved of your royal status. Most new monarchs tried to get the coronation over and done with within a few months of ascending the throne, and Gustav Vasa had let years pass by already. This made him vulnerable from a political perspective, and doubly so since he didn't belong to a long line of kings, but was a parvenu in the royal stage, since his family was merely a nobleman, and not of royal stock. To bolster his legitimacy and to secure his place as the legitimate king of Sweden, Gustav Vasa needed a coronation. A proper coronation, with all the trappings, pomp and circumstance that such an event was supposed to display. But there was a problem. A real coronation needed three bishops, led by an archbishop. And after the Reformation Riksdag, Sweden had very few bishops left, and no archbishop. Gustav Vasa wrote to the Pope and asked to have a new archbishop appointed, but the Pope flatly refused, pointing out that the Archdiocese of Uppsala already had not one, but two living archbishops. If the king wanted an archbishop so badly, he could use one of those. Rome would not supply him with another one. Surprising absolutely no one, Gustav Vasa reacted to this refusal while blowing a fuse. He had three other, more junior bishops crown him in January 1528. The ceremony, paid for by money confiscated from the church, solved the immediate issue of legitimacy, but the relations with Rome were worse than ever. Gustav Vasa became increasingly tempted by the idea to break with the Catholic Church completely and establish a new Lutheran church under the control of the crown. The dilemma of legitimacy for Gustav Vasa's new dynasty and the church's unwillingness to help him will resurface again, not least in connection to his marriage that we'll discuss in a later episode. There's little doubt that the papal refusal to help confer legitimacy on the new Swedish king pushed Gustav Vasa and Sweden into the arms of the Lutheran reformers and they were more than willing to embrace him. A first step in that direction was taken already in 1529 at the Synod in Örebro. Only clerics were invited to the meeting, where Laurentius André ran the show on the king's behalf. It was decided that the priests needed both to preach and to study the Bible more. The number of feast days was to be reduced, but the reduction should not include any days connected to God, the Virgin Mary, or the patron saints of local churches. Finally, it was decided that the Mass shouldn't be altered and various Catholic customs, such as the use of holy water, statues, and palm branches, should be allowed to continue, but they should be given a new Lutheran interpretation as mere symbols and not intrinsically holy. 
Among the Lutherans, there was frustration with the decisions of the Synod. They didn't think these steps were radical enough, and that they reflected too much deference to what they saw as outdated superstitions. This view was strong among several German merchants in Stockholm, and when one of their priests preached against the Synod and its modest reforms, he was arrested and the Lutheran community in Stockholm was warned by the king to pipe down or they would get a taste of that infamous Vasa wrath. But if some thought the changes didn't go far enough, there were others who felt they went far too far. Some priests, most notably from the Abbey in Vastena, founded by St. Bridget, whom we met back in episode 52, had travelled to Urbru thinking that the Synod had been called to put an end to the spread of Lutheranism in Sweden. They were dismayed by what they heard and what was decided at the Synod. And they weren't alone. In several locations around the country, unrest and even rebellions broke out when people learned about what had been decided and what was happening. We'll talk more about that next time. The king, however, didn't listen to those who complained, whatever the content of their complaint. Instead, he pushed ahead with his special brand of reformation. The truth is that up until 1536, what was happening in Sweden could be, and has been, described as Reform Catholicism. But that year, another synod was held, this time in Uppsala, where the use of canon law, that is religious law, was abolished in Sweden, and the Swedish church was declared independent from the Vatican. In the technical sense, this synod marks Sweden's definitive break with Rome and the wider Catholic world. After that, the changes in a more Lutheran direction came one after the other, and the Swedish church was increasingly influenced by Lutheran churches in Germany. In 1544, a Lutheran mass was introduced, and saying mass for the dead was forbidden, since Lutheran doctrine teaches that you can't change your fate after death. So was the use of incense, dipping your fingers in holy water when entering a church, and the veneration of the consecrated host. Those who didn't accept these changes had to go into exile. But the Reformation in Sweden still wasn't as radical as it had been in Denmark. Several Catholic customs survived, such as several saints' days. Even though Swedes were no longer allowed to pray to saints or to venerate them, saints could still be respected and held in high regard as sources of inspiration for an exemplary Christian life. One of the people behind Sweden's turn in a more theologically Lutheran direction was Olaus Petri, the priest who had angered Bishop Brask by getting married. In 1531, he was appointed Chancellor to the King. This was an enormously influential administrative position, which Olaus Petri was completely unsuited for. He was fired already two years later, which freed up a lot of his time to write various religious tracts and to translate the Old Testament into Swedish. He also wrote a chronicle of Swedish history. Unlike basically everyone else who sat down to write a chronicle at the time, Olaus Petri had the unique goal of actually describing the past as accurately as he possibly could, without nationalist propaganda and more or less subtle political messaging. He brushed aside the traditional description of Swedish ancient history completely, pointing out that there wasn't the smallest shred of evidence that the Goths who sacked Rome had originated in Sweden, and that this made Sweden the most ancient and glorious kingdom in Europe, and therefore the world. Nonsense, thought Olaus Petri, and didn't include it in his chronicle. Unfortunately for the reformer, King Gustav Vasa didn't share his enthusiasm for the truth over usefulness in historiography, so he had the manuscript seized and hidden away. 
Olaus Petri's Chronicle wasn't actually published until 1818, almost 300 years after it had been written. And it wasn't just his ineptitude as a bureaucrat and his unfortunate passion for the truth that landed Olaus Petri in hot water as far as the king was concerned. The staunch Lutheran reformer also propagated for an independent church, unfettered both by Rome and the crown. Gustav Vasa didn't mind cutting the ties with Rome and was positively giddy about the prospect of confiscating all the wealth of the church, but he wasn't prepared to accept a Swedish church that operated independently of the crown, that is, of him. In 1539, Ulaus Petri and Laurentius André were both arrested and accused of various treasonous activities. On January 2nd, 1540, they were sentenced to death. But in the end, they weren't executed. Instead, they had to pay heavy fines, which were covered for by their many supporters among the Swedish Lutherans. And that was fortunate, because unlike other, more skillful royal bureaucrats, Ulaus Petri wasn't corrupt enough to have amassed any significant personal wealth to pay the fine. Even though they got to keep their lives, the two reformers would never again achieve the influence over national affairs they had had in the 1530s. But in the greater scheme of things, it didn't matter. They had sent Sweden along the path of Lutheran Reformation, and there was no turning back anymore. Or was there? In future episodes, we will look at attempts to turn back the tide of religious reform in Sweden. But for now, we'll continue to look at the Reformation in Gustav Vasa's realm. Since Finland was a part of Sweden in the 16th century, the king's program of reform also reached across the Gulf of Botnia to the eastern half of the kingdom. The most prominent person in the Finnish Reformation was a priest called Mikael Agricola. Even though he was an early adopter of Lutheranism, he was more moderate in his approach than both Laurentius André and Olaus Petri in Sweden proper, and therefore old traditions and customs survived even longer in Finland than they had done west of the Gulf. Agricola probably first came into contact with Lutheranism during his studies in Viborg, the Viborg in eastern Finland, not Denmark. It was most likely there he took the name Agricola as well, since he'd been born Mikael Olofsson. At the time Mikael Agricola studied in this eastern outpost of the Swedish kingdom, the city was ruled by a German count who was a Lutheran and who had introduced Lutheran services in Viborg. In 1528, Agricola moved to Turku, the administrative capital of Swedish Finland, as well as the see of the bishop. He became the secretary at the bishop's office, and later he was ordained a priest. In 1536, the bishop sent him to Wittenberg in Germany, where Agricola studied under Martin Luther himself, and when he returned to Finland three years later, he eventually ended up as the principal at the cathedral school in Turku. These were the years when the Reformation was taking off in Sweden, and Gustav Vasa was busy confiscating church property and concentrating power in his royal chancery. Even though he was a convinced Lutheran, it would seem that Mikael Agricola wasn't particularly keen on the king and his grabbing of money and power, because when he received an order to send talented young men to Stockholm to work in the royal bureaucracy, he ignored it. The following year, the order was repeated, but this time in a much more threatening tone, something that was very on brand for Gustav Vasa, who didn't hesitate to berate and threaten employees, underlings and subjects when they didn't do what he wanted. A few years later, Gustav Vasa ordered Agricola to retire, but he can't have been too displeased with the Finnish reformer, because six years later, in 1554, the king brought him out of retirement and made him the bishop of Turku, 
the first Lutheran bishop in Finland. We don't know if Mikael Agricola's mother tongue was Swedish or Finnish. On the one hand, he was born in a predominantly Swedish-speaking part of the country and into a better-off family, which, as a class, tended to be Swedish-speaking. But even if he was a native Swedish speaker, he must also have spoken Finnish quite well, because he set himself the goal of translating at least the New Testament into Finnish. The centrality of the biblical text and its message was a crucial part of the Lutheran Reformation, and that's why it was so important to translate the Bible to the local vernacular. But before Agricola could get to work, he had to lay some foundations. Up until that time, there was no standard for Finnish grammar or spelling at all, so we had to start by writing another book called Apesekiria, or the ABC book, which was both an introduction to reading Finnish and a catechism. He then set out to translate the New Testament, and when his translation, Se Usi Testamenti, eventually was ready in 1548, it became the foundational document of written Finnish, earning Agricola the title The Father of Literary Finnish. Another indication that Gustav Vasa trusted Agricola was the fact that the bishop was appointed to participate in a diplomatic mission to Russia in 1557. Sweden had been involved in a war with Russia since 1554, and now it was time to wrap it up. The relations between Russia and Sweden had been tense, and the Tsar, Ivan IV, aka the Terrible, refused to negotiate with the Swedish diplomats in person because they represented an elected king, Gustav Vasa, whom Tsar Ivan felt was below him in rank as the Tsar of Russia. Instead, the Swedish diplomats had to negotiate with the governor of Novgorod, and that's why the eventual agreement is called the Treaty of Novgorod. The treaty included a 40-year-long truce between the two countries and some other provisions, but there's no point in getting into the finer details because, as we'll see in an episode in the not-too-distant future, the truce will not survive the stipulated 40 years. The only reason I bring up the treaty at all is that on the way back home from Russia on April 9, 1557, Bishop Agricola suddenly fell ill and died. He was brought to Viborg, where he was most likely buried, but unfortunately the exact location of his grave is unknown. Since April 9th also happens to be the birthday of Elias Lundrut, the poet and philologist who put together the Finnish national epic Kalevala in the 19th century, the day is nowadays celebrated as the day of the Finnish language. But that's the topic for another day. It would be almost impossible to summarize the impact of the Reformation on Scandinavian society. Clearly, this is one of the most important watershed moments of history, on par with the introduction of Christianity some 500 years before. Beyond the religious changes, the Reformation also had obvious political effects, where the crown and the nobility gained power and wealth at the expense of the church. But there were other changes as well, impacting society and culture for generations to come. The Catholic Church had been the main source for education and healthcare, and when the monasteries started to close down in the 1530s, the schools and hospitals that they had run also closed. In the short term, this had serious effects on education and health. Now, even the admittedly rudimentary schooling and healthcare that had been available vanished. But there were also positive cultural effects in the long term. Literacy levels would eventually rise to almost 100%, since the new Lutheran approach to religious instruction demanded that everyone could read, and the priests checked. 
Eventually, it would become a condition for being declared an adult from the legal perspective that you could read and understand Lutheran Christianity. If you failed to convince the local parish priests that you could read, you wouldn't be able to marry or own property. As I've mentioned on numerous occasions already, the translation of the Bible and other religious texts to the local Scandinavian languages led to standardization of grammar and spelling and also functioned as a boost to writing in the local languages in general. Of course, it also meant that the process of the Scandinavian languages developing in diverging directions also accelerated. Beyond these general developments, when comparing the Reformation in Denmark and Sweden, a few key aspects stand out. Even though the church was fleeced in both Scandinavian kingdoms and emerged from the process weaker and poorer, the Swedish church still managed to hang on to more land and retain more of its autonomy. That's because in Sweden, the new administrative model was based on the traditional Catholic one, with relatively autonomous bishops and the church was more decentralized, whereas the Danish church was more or less ruled directly from the king's chancery. The church in Sweden also kept many more Catholic customs and traditions. Much of the old splendor remained in terms of mass and the physical churches, at least to begin with. And the apostolic succession was also retained, which was important for the legitimacy of the Reformation in the eyes of some people. Many private lingering Catholic habits were also tolerated as long as they were kept discreet and not in public. Much of this was because Gustav Vasa's primary interest in the Reformation was financial and political, and not religious. He just wanted the church's money, so he could pay his debts to Lübeck. It's one of Scandinavian history's big ifs. What would have happened if the church had been more yielding to Gustav Vasa's demands, and handed over money, and appointed a new archbishop when he demanded it? Maybe he wouldn't have gone down the Lutheran path at all, and Sweden might have remained Catholic. The Danish king, Christian III, on the other hand, was a convinced Lutheran and wanted a theological change in addition to the political and economic benefits of the Lutheran program of reform. Still, even though the Reformation in Sweden was less radical and the introduction of strict Lutheranism would take generations, there was still widespread disapproval of the changes among the peasants. I mentioned it in passing already today, and next time we'll take a closer look at exactly how widespread that disapproval was, and to what lengths people were willing to go in order to stop Gustav Vasa's reforms. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words, or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. 
via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.